Thank you for listening to Made to Be, a podcast exploring the surprising professional paths of extraordinary women in business. I'm Kristen Berman, co-founder and CEO of Philly Made Creative, a marketing and media production agency. Listen as I facilitate powerful conversations with women who are masters of their crafts, learn about their journeys and just what it took to become who they were made to be. At the end of your life, whether you live a long one or a short one, it comes down to the fact that you're this person's wife or this person's sister or you know mother or friend, and we are the sum of our relationships. And, and, and if we remember that, I think we take less, we take pressure off ourselves in business. We, all, we often end up doing better in business than we would, but we just keep that constant perspective that however things go for us, you know, on paper, it's it's really our relationships that define us. And that's and that's really what's important in the end. Lifelong dreams don't come true overnight. In fact, most people go through life with a lot of twists and turns, and that's what makes life so exciting. When you were a kid, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? My guest today knew in first grade that she wanted to be an author. As of today, she has penned nine New York Times bestsellers, including Something Borrowed, Heart of the Matter, and her most recent, All We Ever Wanted. But that's not how her professional career started. Her journey includes practical decisions, crushing defeat, and never letting go of her lifelong dream. Join me on this episode as Emily Giffen shares about transitioning from the miserable life of corporate law to being one of the biggest selling women's fiction authors writing today, and how she became who she was made to be. Today, I want to welcome Emily Giffen. She is a nine-time New York Times bestselling author. Emily, thank you so much for being on Made to Be. Oh, thank you, Kristen. It's great to be chatting with you. Emily, this is really exciting for me. I am somebody who is a fan of your work. It's something that, you know, I at least every every uh, summer or so, I'm on the beach uh, down the Jersey Shore and I see not only myself reading it, but so many people reading your books. So I really appreciate your time today. Oh, absolutely. No, thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I'm a big fan of the Jersey Shore. I have a lot of relatives <laughs> up in uh, Moorestown, New Jersey, and my oh, nice. cousin got married in Atlantic City. And so, um, yeah, very cool. That's great. Well, so I just want to dive right in because you were not always an author. You went to school, you went to law school, but I feel like your story, and I want to really dive into your story, is so relatable for people who may be aspiring to be authors or even just aspiring to make a career shift. So if you could just, if you could bring us up to speed in what was what was it that you always wanted to be when you grew up or what led you to becoming a lawyer and practicing law? Okay. Um, Well, I guess we have to go back in time to the seventies way before you were born. Uh, When I was, uh, you know, I remember declaring that I wanted to be an author in kind of the first, it was the first grade. It was one of those things in school where you had to say what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I said, I wanted to be I said I wanted to write books and my mother taught me the word author. She's like, you know, that's what they're called. And she was a, a librarian at the time. So huge love of books and reading and writing. And um, I'd already started to write these little illustrated books, you know, really simple books and stories um, as young as, you know, six and seven, first grade. So anyway, I said that that's what I wanted to be. And really, I never stopped, you know, wanting to do that um, throughout 
my elementary school years and you know junior high my my dad uh, worked for Sears and we moved around a lot uh, we ended up in Chicago but we moved around like every two or three years and so books were really uh, you know characters and books were really some of my closest friends especially that first year when you moved to a new school and you know I just sought such comfort in them so it and then in high school I was the editor of the newspaper and I was the um on the, you know, creative writing club and so forth and went to school, um, at Wake Forest in North Carolina and continued to, you know, I, I double majored, but English was one of my double majors and kept writing, kept a journal. So there was really no reason to all of a sudden decide to take the LSAT when I was in college. But, um, you know, I think that, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people who go to law school, um, they, they sort of, they, they panic. It's like the liberal arts majors who decide to take the LSAT out of like the sense that like, it, it's a default position. Like, mm. oh, I don't know. You know, I'm too afraid to chase my real dreams or in some people's cases, I don't know what, I, what I want to do with my life. And so, you know, we take the LSAT and we go to law school. So that's what I did. And, um, I, I don't regret that. I learned so much. I loved law school. And, um, you know, it enabled me to move to New York City. I don't think that I would have done that um, on my own. Uh, it, like if if it were just, if I just were writing fiction, like if it weren't like a large law firm job that it was like bringing me there, um, I don't know that I would have done that. So mm-hmm. um, so it was, you know, so then I, then I moved to New York and, you know, I have all these law school loans and... Um, yeah, I'm, you know, practicing litigation at this large firm and sort of working around the clock. And I, I, I was miserable. Like I hated it. I hated it, but you know, I, I had to pay these loans back and, um, and, and I liked living in New York city and I made friends at my law firm. So it wasn't, you know, a complete wasted experience, but my, my goal was to pay back these loans and in the meantime, write a book and hopefully maybe get it published and um, then you know, make a transition. So, um, I mean, that felt like a huge long shot. And it, as it turned out, it, it turned out to be a huge long shot because I wrote this book over the course of five years uh, while I practiced law and got an agent, which was so exciting, but then ultimately it was, it was rejected um, across the board. So, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, some, some people read my story that I was a lawyer and I quit and I moved to London and I wrote a book and it was something borrowed and the movie hit the bestseller list. And it, I mean, the book hit the bestseller list and it was eventually made into a movie and, you know, it just sounds so charmed. And although <laughs> I do consider myself so lucky that ultimately it did work out, um, you know, the true story is it had been a lifelong dream. It, um, you know, I, this misstep of, of, of sorts of going to law school, although I really don't characterize it that way. I think it was, it was a great like twist in the journey, but, um, and then the di- great, the crushing disappointment that, you know, many, many, many writers who aspire to publish commercially go through, um, where you, you know, you're, you're told this isn't what we're looking for, which is just kind of a nice way of saying you know, we don't, we don't like this story enough to publish it, you know, we're rejecting it, whatever you want to call it. So that's kind of like what brought me to, to trying again and to quitting my job and resigning and deciding to, to give it another shot. 
Yeah. And you touched on so many points that I think people can relate to of you've had this dream for your entire life. You're in college and you have to make a decision at the end of college. What are you going to do? And like you said, it became sort of that default of going and taking the LSATs. What was it for you that had you really choose that path? You know, part of it was just this practical sense of, um, you know, you, I, I have to, I have to like, have a job that will pay for, you know, my expenses. I have to live, right? And, and I didn't want to be a journalist. I decided at some point during my years at Wake Forest um, that I didn't want to be a reporter or a journalist. And so I really wanted to write creatively. And um, it, it didn't seem like the kind of thing you can just sort of, you know, you, you, you graduate from, unless you're going on to get your, um, you know, you're going to graduate school of some kind to write. Like, it doesn't seem like, I, I, I couldn't conceive of a job that I could have. I mean, I couldn't just like graduate from college and start writing a novel. I didn't think that, you know, that's just not practical. And so law school felt, you know, I was a double major in English and history. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, the people who are drawn to the legal profession typically enjoy writing and reading. And um, those are skill sets that sort of lend themselves well to, to that profession. And so, and I love school, you know, this, to me, like school was, I was always a little bit on the, you know, nerdy side and, um, you know, love to read and write, as I mentioned. And it's like, oh, well, I can put off the real world for another three years by pursuing this, you know, this another degree and being, you know, and being in law school and then I can get a practical job and then sort of prove myself to the, you know, to, to my parents, although they never really put much pressure on me in, in, in that way. But I think, I think we put pressure on ourselves a lot in our twenties um, and, and at various points in our lives, but sort of to like, you know, to this, we have this idea of what success looks like. And, um, in part of, I think that success is misguided though it is for many of us, I believe it to be misguided now is the sense of like, you know, making a good living, i.e. have, you know, making a decent salary. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well I can go to law school, do re- reasonably well because I had always gotten A's and I just like, you know, was really good in, in school. So I can, I can translate these three, three more years of studying and three more years of A's into sort of a lucrative career that has the stamp of approval by, you know, my parents and society and, you know, my, my classmates. And, you know, I can, I can sort of convert this academic success into, into something that's like, okay, I've made it. And I remember actually, this is something that just all of a sudden occurred to me. Um, but it, as you're asking these questions, I remember the first day of law school. So you're, we're sitting there and the dean um, came up and was speaking before the whole incoming, you know, 1L class. And he said, um, he said, basically, you know, and I was at the University of Virginia, which is a top, top 10 law school. So everyone sitting in the room, it was sort of, you know, had done well in the LSAT, had gotten these you know, really high grades, and we all had like high GPAs in college. And, and you were sitting there in this room like, wow, we were, you know, we're at this esteemed law school and you know, this is this journey's beginning. And I remember expecting him to speak in lofty terms about uh, the profession and the constitution and you know what we were all doing. And instead he said, he launched into this whole um, speech about how we were at this top law school. And if we did well, 
we would have, I remember the exact phrase he used. I think it's because I wrote it in my journal. I did write it in my journal and I read it uh, over the years repeatedly uh, several times, but he said something along the lines of, if you do well, employers will literally be scattering roses at your feet. Hmm. And I want to caution you against um, chasing the kind of success and, 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 and something about climbing the rungs of a ladder that will ultimately end in unhappiness. And I thought it was such an intriguing like concept, but also just so peculiar to like say at the start of your, you know, you're going to law school, presumably most of us to go be, you know, lawyers and often at large firms. But he was sort of saying, be careful because if you do that and it's just your idea of success that you're chasing, you're not going to be happy. And it was so prophetic because I, I can't tell you, all of my close friends, you know, almost to the person, really to the person. I mean, I, 20 people pop into my head right now. All, we all did well enough to get those, you know, high paying jobs, like in big cities. And we took them because you were crazy not to, you know, to go from law school loans to, to I remember my, you know, first salary back in 1995 was like $95,000, like blew your mind. And so instead of going to work for a not-for-profit or go to the DA's office or really think about what I wanted to do, I was like, yeah, I'll take this. So we all took these jobs. We were all miserable. And almost all of my friends have since left these firms, some some sooner than I, some a little after I. If several are, are, you know, made it through to the partner track and are partners, but even most of them who did, and it's a very small number, didn't, aren't, aren't particularly happy and gratified. So he was right. And um, for me, it, he, he, he was right. Uh, it took me, it, it took me five years to leave. Part of it was just practical. Like I have to pay these loans back. And part of it was that I really wanted to give this, this, you know, I'd, I'd gone to school for three years. I needed to pay the loans back, but also I wanted to sort of give that chapter of my life five years. It just like incrementally, like you often think in terms of five years and, you know, that's what I did. And I also knew that, that most likely that I would have a second book rejected and I would return to it. But in my mind, I thought, well, if I do have to return to the law, I'll at least find a niche that makes me happier than this like you know big firm culture hmm. so I think that's that's kind of the path but you know I I also I always like to mention particularly when you know I think that younger viewers are you know or listeners are out there I like to mention that I, I really I don't like to think in terms of making mistakes in life in terms of like okay so law school technically I guess was a mistake because it cost me a fortune and you know, I didn't end up practicing law and I wasn't particularly happy, but it also, so many great things came from that. You know, whether you choose a profession that's wrong for you or a relationship that's wrong for you, it's just all part of the texture of life. Mm -hmm. And I, I really view, you know, law school and in, in, in practicing law in that way. It just added so much texture to my life. It enabled me to live in New York City. Um, and, it, you know, my first book was about a, a lawyer practicing law in New York, so who knows if I would have written, you know, I wouldn't have written the same book and then who knows if it would have been published. And, you know, so it's just, it's, it's just sort of, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but it's, it's crazy the, the twists and turns that life take and you can't, you can't possibly map it out. So you just sort of have to make decisions and then react to them and, and be willing to, to say, okay, this doesn't feel right. 
I don't feel like this is, I'm being true to myself or authentic and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to jettison these, this path and try something new. So I'm really all over the map now. I feel like. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email made to be at phillymadecreative.com. <laughs> That's okay. That I think that this is this is how we think and this is how we even act sometimes and and for you to have made that decision, I mean, do you remember what the last week or the last day of your 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 legal job was like and what it felt like to come home and step into this new volume of your life what what was that like sure, sure. you know it was it was scary for sure it was um I, i'll share an anecdote about the last uh day of work i remember like you know when you leave a job and you've been there for a while and your office is filled with a lot of your, you know, personal things that accumulate. It was a process of like a couple weeks of taking things out in boxes or whatever and taking them home and files that you wanted to save and so forth. But, um, it was the last day and kind of last box, the last few things on my desk. And I'm walking to the elevator and I was kind of, you know, a little, little bit excited, but nervous and melancholy about, you know, some of the friends that I knew you have your close friends you'll always keep in touch with, but like, you know, the, your, your buddies in the mail room and your like acquaintance associates that, you know, realistically, you're not going to go to lunch with them, you know, six months from, from, from now, but, um, that sort of thing. Anyway, I'm walking out with this box and this partner that I just could never stand. He was horrible to all of us. He kind of like did that, um, he did that uh, double like holster, like gun, like pointing the guns, like, oh, you're writing a book. Good luck with that. He said something like, everybody's writing a book. Good luck with that. And like did the little double gun thing. And I was like, and then the elevator doors open and I stepped out and they closed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hate that man so much. And I knew that he wasn't really going to think about me beyond, you know, ever again, unless like he stumbled across a file or a work product of mine that I hadn't done right that he could get mad at me about again. But, um, you know, I, so I knew that I didn't, I wasn't going to have to really go back to that law firm per se, or to his, you know, to be under his thumb and be like, okay, I didn't publish the book. I'm back. But at the same time, you know, you feel that sense of, oh my God, this is such pressure. You, you, you can, you're setting yourself up for what feels like will be probably like very likely be, be failure. But once again, you know, you, you can't view it that way because, you know, I had to say to myself, okay, let's say failure happens and failure in this sense would be, you know, another wave of rejection letters and, you know, a book, another manuscript that only my mother and sister and a handful of friends will ever read. And it, you know, it'll just go into my attic with that first one that I have. Um, is that, is that such a bad thing? Is that such a terrible thing? Like, you know, what will, what experiences will I have had on the journey to write the second book? What people will I meet? What, what will I learn about myself as a result of this journey? Even if it doesn't end up in, 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 you know, in sort of a commercially successful ending to that, to that part of the journey. And so I think that's, that's really important to remember. And, you know, as it turned out, I did, I moved to, I moved to London to write something borrowed and, um, 
you know, I, it was just, it was such an, an adventure in, in my life, such a, like I wrote in all these different places in London and, you know, I would look for cheap flights on the weekends and fly to, you know, Bruges and all these these things that I would never have done, you know, I, I don't think realistically I would have like booked flights to Barcelona and Bruges and all the places that I could see from London. So even if the book hadn't been published a year later, that was an incredibly rich time in my life. Um, and, you know, even if I hadn't moved to London, other things would have happened in New York or back in my hometown or wherever it is that I live. So I think it's just, it's important to think of it that way, I think. And and what was it that had you moved to London specifically? It wasn't really one specific thing. Well, first of all, it was kind of like, well, where can I go overseas where I can speak the language? So I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough to, to go to Italy or, or France, but my mother is a huge Anglophile and passed that along to, um, to, to my sister and to me, um, you know, on my Instagram page, the first thing it says is, I, I believe, um, Royal Watcher or Anglophile or something like that. What, what does it say exactly? Oh, it's the second. I moved novelist to front of it. It says Royal Watcher. But, you know, I, I just, I love everything about that country. I, I really do. And we grew up just, just loving everything about that country. And my sister had gone there for a, kind of a work study. She had gone, she'd worked at Harrods for six months. Um, so she had done it for, she's a year older and she had done that first in her like early twenties. And so I just decided that I, I'd saved enough. I was going to, you know, I had a job lined up there. I was going to move there. And my then boyfriend, now husband, um, got Lehman brothers who we worked for at the time to move his, like to, to transfer him to London. He had worked there years before I met him and, um, at the, at the London office. And so it sort of worked out, and then I went with him and made it easier. And um, it was, you know, it, it was, that's sort of how it, it came to be London. But it, in, it was only supposed to be sort of a six month to a year endeavor. And it ended up being two years. And so I wrote uh, my first whole book there. And then part of the, my second book, Something Blue, there as well. Hmm. And, and so when Something Borrowed became... Uh, when it became a movie, when you had gotten the green light to get that made, what, what was that like for you as, uh, as somebody in business, having gone from the legal profession to being a writer and an author, and now you are making a movie? What, what was that like for you? You know, it happens so gradually. Again, it's one of those things like when you, when you say it that way, it sounds like, oh my gosh, how amazing. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's like, oh, you moved to London and you wrote something borrowed and it was, a, uh, but it, you know, real life doesn't look like that. So it was, it was one of those things where someone optioned it. And then so the book came out in 04, 2000, summer of 2004. And then someone optioned it right away. And then two or three years passed and they never did anything with it and the option lapsed and then somebody else optioned it. And, you know, they kind of sat on it and nothing happened. And, you know, I'm told by my fellow, my agent, my editor, fellow author friends, like, ah, Hollywood's like, it, n- nothing ever happens with these things. People option and they option it for such a s- tiny amount of money that there's really, they don't really have much skin in the game. And so, you, you know, you just, you just don't know. And even if they really feel passionate about the project, they've got, you know, in, in many cases to convince, you know, to get, get the funding or to convince actors to attach or a director to attach. And so there's just a lot of 
moving parts to it. So again, nothing happened for several years. And then the, the second, the second producer, um, ended up getting a call from a, a woman named Molly Smith, who was, um, at the time part of Alcon entertainment. Um, she's now, she has her own production company called black label, but she is, happened to be in Atlanta where, where I currently live, um, filming the blind side. So it's like this, this football movie, she told me it was this football movie and did I want to meet for lunch? And we met and, um, she said, well, I'm interested in partnering with the second, you know, the, the, the second p- producer and getting this made. And um, at that point, I was excited, mostly because I just liked her so much. And I just had, I, I had faith in her. I could, I could see it happening as opposed to just getting these calls from people you don't know from, you know, your eight co- that come through your agent. And I went on the set of The Blind Side and watched her film it. And it's just, it just seemed like such a great group of people. And it seemed like, like it could happen. And sure enough, but even then I'm like, Oh, that would be great if it happens, you know? And then, um, it, you know, it, it did, it did happen. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was amazing. It was so much fun. Um, such a, such a learning curve of just seeing how all this is made. It was a foreign world to me, not one. I mean, we all watch movies, but I didn't have any friends in the industry or, um, you know, didn't, didn't go to LA much. And, um, so it was just, it was, it was a really cool experience. And I think they did a great job. It was it, the collaborative part of it is so much fun because of course, writing novels is very solitary. And that was one thing that I really missed about the, the you know, the legal profession. It was very, you know, a large law firm. It was a lot of us in our twenties. It was very Ally McBeal and feel, um, well, not quite Ally McBeal, but you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it had that kind of, um, you know, you, you were, you were all in it together. So that was really fun. And then of course, Kate Hudson and John Krasinski, and you have these like, you know, big names attached and to see the scenes of your book that you wrote, you, you wrote while living in London before you ever knew that the book would be published, you know, read by anyone. And now suddenly these scenes are being brought to life by Kate Hudson. It, it, it did, it did, it blew my mind. It was very surreal. It, it was a very cool thing. And, and was there a, a moment for you that you realized, you know what, I've, I've made it as an author. The moment that I always go back to is when my agent called me and said, you know, you have, you have two offers and it wasn't some big dramatic offer or some bidding war. Like you hear about with like these, these, you know, these uh, epic first novels like The Help or like Water for Elephants. It was just more of a, okay, they'll publish you for this small amount and they'll publish you for an even smaller amount, but they'll put you in hardcover first. It didn't matter. Like none of that mattered to me. It was just like, this book is going to have a cover and be in libraries and bookstores. Like it just blew my mind. And it was an absolute dream come true. And, you know, as I described earlier, some things are, it's, it doesn't happen so dramatically or it's not like you, that moment was just like fairy tale. Like to hear her say that and then to call my, you know, call my mother back in, so I was in London and she was back in Chicago and to call her and say, it's going to be published. Of course she said, Go with the Lesler offer that's going to put you in hardcover. They're like, okay, mom, done. Um, so that was so, that was so cool. Um, but as far as like making it or whatever, I mean, I think that you know I've been very lucky, and I'm aware of that, and um, I'm just so grateful to to my readers and my 
you know, editors and the people who've worked with me along the way. Um, and, and it's like, it's, it's always, it's it, like, I, I always try to remain very aware of that and stay grateful for all of that. But at the same time, you know how life is. It's like, it's easy to take things for granted and focus on, um, focus on the next deadline, you know, the bad, the bad review that you might get on Amazon or the fact that you've dealing with writer's block or, um, you know, oh, I'll never be able to write uh, another book again. Cause I just can't like, I can't I just lost my mojo. And, you know, it just, it, it's a struggle with every book and you're always sort of, I think most of us are, you know, pushing for, the next, the next level or trying to, trying to achieve more or, you know, so I have to guard against that because I, I, I'm, you know, thrilled that I can tell stories for a living and connect with readers and that I've been so lucky with, with things. But, um, I, I wouldn't say that there's ever been a time when I like sat back and thought, well, like I'm the bomb. This is great. Like this, this is just, awesome. It's more like, well, I should be doing this better. I should be writing faster. I don't know if this book is any good. Why hasn't the second movie been made yet? I mean, so it's, it's, I think that's the nature of life. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email made to be at phillymadecreative.com. I appreciate you digging into those things because, you know, especially in the age of social media, and you may have heard this quote before of, you know, try not to compare your behind the scenes to somebody else's highlight reel, you know, so, so seeing people, you know, seeing people on social media, on Instagram, uh, having these successes, I think as people in business, we uh, may assume that we know what they went through or, and really only see the successes, but we really don't know those insecurities or those things that we, we have inside of ourselves to really, uh, challenge us and may, may cause doubt, but at the same time, what it takes to push past that. So even when, you know, your first book, you received, like you said, a series of rejection letters, but then the second book, like you still continued, you didn't stop after that first book. And those are all those things. And and even after that, now that you have written so many great novels and, and been a part of a, a, a movie production and, and you're continuing to do those things. The fact that you still have those questions, I think that's, that's something that we all have and can all, you know, look for ourselves. And, and when do we allow the, that doubt to stop us? And you're somebody who, who, whether you have those or not, you continue to, you continue to produce the thing that you want to do and do the thing that you want to do. Yeah, I mean, you've touched on a lot there. There's like so many things I could say, but I what what jumps to mind is first of all, every book for me is harder than the one before it, and I, I don't know why that is. It must be an element of like, and, and I know I know sort of intellectually, rationally that I can do it because I've done it nine times, ten if you include the one that wasn't published, and you know I'm working on now the eleventh. And and so I know that I can do it, but it still feels so scary and insurmountable every single time. And um, this this I just wrote like at like three in the morning to a friend that I've had since the third grade, who's like, "Oh, you'll 
you know, you'll be fine. The book will be great. Like he, he did the whole like pep talk. Cause he's like, why? He said, why haven't I heard from you? And I wrote, um, he's like, you'll get your swagger back. That's what he said. And I said, here's the thing. I never have swagger. So I just wrote this like th three nights ago. Okay. Here's the thing. I never have swagger. I'm always miserable and panicked and depressed when I write with every single book. Not so much that it sucks, but that I just can't do it. I stare at a blank page for most of my life. It's what makes it paralyzing sometimes to even write back to your text. Ha ha. It's like I haven't written one decent sentence. How dare I get up to work out or write a friend or enjoy life. It's a cycle of self-loathing and panic. My agent editor tell me it's normal, kind of goes on. And I said, I've slept three hours tonight. That's a good night. So it sounds like I'm just like so full of self-pity. Um, and, and again, I'm so grateful for where I am, but at the same time, that's very realistic snapshot of what like daily life feels like in my head a lot of the times. And so, yeah, I think that, and, and I don't think my social media would, would mirror that. Although I do try to make an effort to post like the totally messy rooms in our house or, um, you know, the dogs ripping packages apart or, you know, the just. I try to be realistic with my posts, but at the same time, you know, you tend to like, you know, post the happier, prettier snapshots. And it's just, it's, you really do your, your quote that you just read at this, the outset of your question is so true. I mean, it's just not, everyone has struggles. Every, everyone, everyone has insecurities and, um, you know, I, I definitely, definitely share those. Um, as a writer, as a mother, as a friend, you know, we just all make mistakes. And I, I do try to capture that in my writing that, that, um, you know, I write about relationships and the, the, the um, how we are all, I think most of us, most of us um, are good people trying to do the right thing. And yet inevitably we, we make these mistakes that hurt ourselves, that hurt others. We tend to hurt the people we love the most because that's just, you know, the people you that you aren't in a close relationship with, you don't really have the capacity to to hurt by your actions as as much as you do your sisters, your brothers, your your parents, you know, your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you know, writing about those things, um, the the relatability of those mistakes and the search for forgiveness when we screw up and forgiving others when they screw up. It's just it's it's what I. It's what I write about. So sort of baked into, um, you know, everything that I'm doing as, as a writer um, is this sense of life is quite imperfect. So um, I, I think I'm, I might be more realistic than most. And I, and I actually have to struggle to balance that in my own head with life is also beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm doing what I love. Um, three beautiful children. And it's not just the panic of writer's block, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but that's the truth. That's that. I just gave you the real, the, the real truth. It's, I really do appreciate it. I mean, I think that people often look at people who they regard as successful and think that it's easy for them now that, you know, that person thinks that, this other person is much more successful than them in their mind, but don't realize that, like you said, we all go through struggles. We all go through these things that uh, whether we are hurting somebody else by accident or somebody's hurting us by accident or on purpose, that life still happens regardless yes. of where we are in our careers. And you, sure. you get a chance to dive into that and influence how people 
can even process it themselves. I mean, if you, you know, consider your last book where the, the topic of it was dealing with basically you've got parents that are dealing with their children who have made a mistake or a child who has made a mistake. And these are real life scenarios. This is something that is happening every day. And how do you, what do you think of as your responsibility or at least your, um, your gift to be able to share that kind of story and help people through that? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very kind characterization. So thank you for that, for that. But, you know, I don't, I don't ever sit down to write a book with the, with the sense of, um, you know, I'm going to relay this message and this moral message and it's not my responsibility to do. So I just, you know, I create a world of characters who I, you know, I, I hope are realistic and nuanced and, um, you capture the complexity of human emotion. And I write about these characters and then messages do emerge. Themes do emerge as I'm writing. Um, and, you know, and one of the themes in, in several of my books that sort of echoes my own journey that I described to you earlier in the, in the podcast is this sense of, um, you know, uh, you, you want your life to look a certain way, and yet, will that will that yield happiness? Like, is it? Are you being? You know, are we being true to ourselves? Are we being true to our values? And are we being authentic, or are we just marrying the person that everyone thinks we should marry? Or, you know, pushing our kids? I mean, it's like this whole college scandal. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those people. Why did they want their kids to go to USC over? you know, another school that the child could have gotten into without this. It's like, what's the reason? And I think a lot of it comes down to the perception of others in their lives. You know, I don't, I don't think that they thought to themselves, my kid is going to be so much happier here. Maybe they did, but I think it's more about how is this going to look to others and to my, this sense of what, how others perceive my life to be. And if you live your life like that, we all fall into the trap you know, I have, I will continue to, we, we all sort of succumb to that here and there, but it's really important to keep your eye on the big picture and say to yourself, like, that doesn't matter. It's like, am I being true to myself? Am I making the decisions that really feel right to me and that, that matter to, to me and to the people I love? Um, and is it what's best for that was something Nina and, you know, all we ever wanted that you described, she had to sort of make the decision, what was best for her child, not what looked best to others, not what seemed like what she imagined that she wanted for her child. Like, you know, when she was pregnant, but just like really what was the right thing for him. And it's, it's hard. It's definitely hard sometimes, but you know, my books, because I write about relationships and families and uh, marriages and friendship and all of that. Like, you know, I, I, I write about all these, all these nuances. And, and so um, it's what's interesting to me. And it's, it's what I always return to in, in my fiction. Do you ever find that when you're having a great day or a bad day, vice versa, that that influences how you are able to write? Does that impact, um, does that impact you as an author or are you able to separate your, your reality from this fictional reality? Yeah, I cannot separate them very well, which is such an interesting question. Um, but I would say it's almost more, unfortunately, I, this is probably something I need to work on, but it's almost more the other way around. In, in other words, when the, my writing is going well, I'm so much lighter 
And, you know, I I think it's that inner nerd in me. It's like, you know, when I had a big test in high school or college or law school or whatever, and I'm, I was like nervous and worried about it. It was very hard to be light or present. Um, and it's kind of the same way now. It's almost like being a novelist, although it is my dream come true and there is nothing that I would rather be doing. It's almost like constantly living under the pressure of a, of a deadline, you know, a huge paper being due. Um, and then the difference is, and what creates all the more pressure, of course, the goal is to be, my goal is to be a published writer. So that by nature means that people will read and enjoy my stories or, hopefully enjoy them. But, um, but at the same time, then of course you're writing, knowing that you're going to your work's going to be scrutinized by others. And that's gets, that gets in your head. That's another like layer of something that you're worried about because I never want to disappoint my readers. It's like the worst phrase in the world is when you hear, when I hear someone say about like a musician or a band, oh, I like their old stuff better, right? Like you never want that to happen. You always, you know that every book isn't going to appeal to everybody, but you always, I always want to feel like, and maybe this goes to the nature of my like mounting pressure with each book, but I always want the book that I'm writing to be better than the one before it, which isn't to say that everybody will love it equally, but just like from a technical standpoint, like, okay, this is a more accomplished book, a more layered book. And, you know, I've, I've taken this, I hate, I hate this expression, but like taking a craft to like the next level, you know? Um, and so that's, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's something that, that I, that I think of did I answer your question on yeah, that? You I did. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> that tends to happen. I mean, that that's part of why I like doing this as a podcast because you get to sort of explore these areas of your mind and allow yourself to be real with yourself. And this is part of why I'm creating this podcast is for people to, you know, I, I found for myself, there was so much of that highlight reel. And yeah. I, I want to get to know the people who are real and share those stories because it will help other people. You know, this, this podcast is, uh, I'll say meant for women in business. And uh-huh. there are men that are going to listen to this. And I think that, as women in business, it is it is so important for us to support one another and be able to share those stories because there there is this past, there is this uh, sort of uh, understanding of what success looks like in business and what success you know can be for a woman. And I think that we are at a point in the world where where women are so powerful, we're so resilient, we have so many great ideas, and we're finding the people around us that support us. And whether that was the culture of business in the 90s or the 80s or, or even uh, most more recent than that, where we're going is a place of support. And especially in this, in this uh, like you said, your, your things are being, your, your work is open to scrutiny. You know, you've got people who don't ever have that in their lives. And the, the challenge that that is for you is something that now that people have social media and we are in a global world, in one post, something can go viral. And yeah, isn't that crazy? One post, someone yeah. can, can be known internationally. And they don't know when that'll happen or if, if that will happen. And, you know, what does happen if, if somebody you know, starts to, you know, you talk about, um, about bullying on social media in some, in your last book and that does happen. And, right. you know, how do you deal with that? You've, you've been in this, in this public life for, 
for a little while now, but this is, this is something that people are just starting to deal with even professionally. So what are, what are some things for you that have helped you either grow into this public eye or that you continue to do to, um, maybe, you know, shield yourself, protect yourself, or just deal with those things? Sure. That's a great question. I mean, it's, there's such a balance between being savvy about these things and being authentic. Like if you're scrutinizing everything you say, we all know the the social media accounts that you can tell the person's not saying themselves. It's just like this, like, you know, bland statement after statement, um, you know, with certain celebrities or public figures, you could just tell it's not really their voice, but that's ultimately like the safest way to be, right? To, to, to post like that, as opposed to just being incredibly real and unfiltered, which brings another set of risks. Um, you know, I've, I've been, when I first started writing or publishing, you know, there was on no social media, then it was like my space with your like eight friends or whatever, your eight top friends and slots. And it's just slowly grown. So as my career has grown, so social media has changed and I've had, you know, I've had missteps and, um, you know, things that I've, the, that I've posted that maybe I shouldn't have and so forth. But at the same time, I've always, I've always tried to be very honest and authentic. And I know that it really doesn't bother me anymore. Maybe it should bother me more, but like if people, you know, I don't want to upset anyone, but I have to be true to myself and how I feel. And, and it's not going, people aren't always going to like it. You could, you cannot please everybody all the time. You just, you just can't. And one thing that I think is important too, is that worries me about our society is that we've, I feel like we've lost a sense of nuance about things. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like people try to say that things are, you know, all good or all bad. Like, you know, people can make people can post something that's, that's uh, like a misstep or like put their foot in their mouth or, you know, say something that's not PC. And I think we, we, we have to be able to say, okay, that's wrong. And we don't agree with it, but that this person isn't just their life isn't ruined because of it. And I think that goes back to, you know, the whole notion of forgiveness and redemption. I mean, like I, 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 I don't know this person well, but she did my Q and a at, um, and this is probably something that my publicist and team would say, don't touch on that in the podcast. Like they don't bring that up, but I'm just going to, for purposes of making this point, but you know, with, with Megan Kelly and that blackface comment, I mean, I, I, I was appalled. I was appalled. I know her, she did my Q and a, I was very grateful for her for doing that at my last book launch. She seems, she's very intelligent. She seems like a lovely person, but I thought that was just, you know, reprehensible. Um, I just thought it was terrible that she, that she thought that was okay to like talk about on air in that way and totally wrong. Now, I think you can still maintain that position and say that she has good qualities and she can, you know, that she can be forgiven and that she can work again and that she can, you know, you, you don't have to like unfollow her and hate her for life. And I, that's, that's, um, that nuance I think is very difficult for people. It's, it's just, our society has become so, and I love how PC we are because that's how I am. But at the same time, the, the judgmental side of it, I think has to be, to be balanced. Um, like I think we should, it, it's sort of like my, 
the story, you know, the, the, the characters of my book, this, this boy and all we ever wanted, um, you know, posted something of this girl that was like horrible and the mother was responding to it. Okay. So there's, she can maintain that what he did was wrong and that there should be consequences, but still love him. And obviously that's different when it's your own child or your spouse or, um, you know, someone, someone you love versus someone you just might follow on social media, you might hit unfollow and be done with them. And that's understandable too. But, you know, we, I think we have to work on as a, as a society, that sense of empathy on, on, on all sides so that we continue to listen and see and see the nuance um, and, and still uphold our standards and our values and call, call things out when we feel it's appropriate, but then be willing to have a dialogue and ultimately be willing to forgive. I just think it really, for me and my fiction and my life, so much of it comes down to, to, to empathy and forgiveness. Mm. And some people don't deserve to be forgiven, which is fine too. Um, you know what? I've written books about unfaithful marriages. You know, heart of the matter is about it's written, written from the perspective of a. Um, I think it's my fifth book, but from the perspective of the, the the other woman who's having the affair with the doctor and then the wife, and it goes sort of back and forth. You know, and it's like you can you can say you think this is wrong what she's doing, but then sort of understand it and can can you forgive her actions and and then it, ultimately at the end. Well, I, for those who have might still read it, I won't say what happens at the end, but who are we to judge? I'll use a more public example. So many people had a problem with, you know, Hillary Clinton forgiving Bill Clinton for his affairs, you know, and we can say, well, I wouldn't forgive my husband for doing that. And that's fine. Um, but like, who are we to step into that, that marriage and say what we think that Hillary should do with respect to her, you know, her, her husband and her marriage is a mystery. We, we, we can't purport to understand someone else's mystery, someone else's, I mean, someone else's marriage or friendship. And um, I think, I think we so often want to sort of set, set, set those rules out and say, well, if my husband did this, then I would do this. And it's just, it's much more, it's much more nuanced. And you just don't know. I mean, people are so quick to judge and you don't know what you would do if you were put in that situation. I don't know what I would do if I was put in that situation. And to and it depends on so many things, right? It, d- it depends on, you know, how sorry he is or what the circumstances were and how you feel and whether you think he'll, you know, counseling, it just depends. And it, And I think the same is true with the people who make these comments on social media that are that are just like racist or wrong or, you know, it, it depends. Are they sorry? Had they, did they, you know, did, was it taken out of context? What are they doing to fix it, to learn from it? So I just don't think that there's one size fits all when it comes to, you know, when it comes to our reactions to these things. And I, I think as a society, we're becoming very extreme in the way we, in the way we judge and, you know, um, dismiss summarily and, you I don't know. I just, I'm thinking aloud here. It's such a great question. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for really sharing because you are on social media a lot. There are people who, um, you know, and you post some controversial topics that, that even you post some of the, the messages that you receive and you, you always are, you blur out the person, but you are thought provoking in the sense of, 
you know, you are still sharing what you think and how you feel and what you think is important. And if somebody is so quick to judge, then at least you're able to continue that conversation in the, in the spotlight versus it ending in the comments too. Um, and, and that's really up to everyone's, uh, everyone's idea of how important is this topic and for you, if, if that is something that you want to share about or not. But I think that, you know, it's important for people to see that social media is an extension of themselves. And, you know, as, as somebody in business, you are somebody who has to really watch. I mean, I think we all, we all need to watch what we are posting, but somebody who, who has that existing viewership, those readers, what is that like for you in making a decision to post something or to not knowing that it could impact you, you as a business person? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you do, you know, uh, like if, if you step back, you know, I'm sharing stories that are, that are important to me, like that I want, I want my readers to read these stories, but it, it's a business and it's like comes down to sometimes like the number of copies you sold and so forth. You get those statements from your publisher and I'm aware if I post something about, you know, for example, D- Donald Trump that I might upset, you know, a uh, um, a reader in a, in a red state who loves Donald Trump and maybe they'll boycott the books and they let me know sometimes that that's how they feel. And, you know, all I can say is I, I, I have to do like, there's some things that are more important to me than, than, than sales. And that's, that's one of them. And I feel like there's a time right now that I feel the need to speak up now, you know, I, I am, I am a, I am a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat, but I didn't feel, even though I disagreed with a lot that George Bush did, I never felt so compelled, you know, true, I wasn't on social media as much, but I didn't feel compelled to share those views with strangers at the time because I just th- think it was a different world we lived in and then. And it was like, okay, well, you know, my husband's a Republican. He, he's, he's, he's left the party recently, but he, you know, he's a Republican and that always worked. I remember when we voted in, um, 2000, uh, when did Romney run? 12 or is that eight? Mm. Whatever. It was 2012, right? Yeah. McCain was eight. Yes. Yes. So it was 2012. And I remember, so the kids were old enough to know what was going on. My boys were nine and Harriet was six and we walked up the stairs at the church where we voted and there was like empty poll. And I said, okay, kids, I'm going to the left to vote. And daddy's going over to that machine to the right. And you are free to go with whoever, you know, whoever you want to vote with. And so two of the kids came with me right away. And the third was kind of torn and ultimately came with me. But I think felt like that was, I I don't want to digress into politics so much, but, um, but that was a time when I felt like, you know, we could, we could just, we could disagree. We, we still should be able to disagree, but I feel strongly enough about certain things that are happening that I feel like morally that I need to, to post about them. And I don't view it as politics. I don't view them as policy differences. I think we can still have policy differences. I just think there are certain bright line things that need to be discussed again, in the same way that I, that I, that I think Megan Kelly's comments might need to be discussed, but that doesn't mean that we have to hate on Megan Kelly forever, um, you know, or hate on her at all. Um, and I, I think that that is, that's a nuance that I continue to try to like present in my, in my social media. Some get that, some don't. Um, and again, you can't please people all the time, but it's, I feel compelled as, as, 
viewing sort of Instagram as an extension of myself. These, this is, these are decisions that I've made. Are they right? Are they wrong? Are they smart to do from a business standpoint? Certainly not. Um, you know, is it, I don't, I don't know. It's, I st- I'm trying to feel all that out, but it feels right to me to express myself in these times. I, I just feel like it's the, it's the right thing to do for me. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of where I am. That's great. So bef- before we wrap up, I just have two more questions for you. Okay. The first one is what is next for you? What do you, wh- what is the next level that you are looking to get to in your career? Well, one thing that's sort of next for me, which is so, so interesting that you asked the question that way is, uh, you know, it's probably not the answer you expect, but where, what I'm trying to do right now, and I touched on it earlier, is to, ju- is to not think about my life in terms of the next level, is to just to be really present in the chapter that I'm in and the, you know, miserable or not, filled with joy or filled with anxiety or anything in between, just really be present in the moment. I think maybe part of that stems from having uh, identical twin boys who are who are in the ninth grade, and it's just you realize how fleeting it is. My daughter's in the, about to leave lower school and start middle school, so there's partly it's that it's like let's just really enjoy this, and also I think it's important to to for me to to have that sense of gratitude about where I am. Um, and, and not sort of think, okay, well, I need to start doing more or writing faster or doing more in, you know, in, in the, in the world of film or television. Now we, we, the, the interesting part of that is a lot of things are sort of happening right now when, when I've made the decision that I'm not going to put pressure on myself in that way. It's, and that's kind of maybe the nature of relationships too. Like when you stop freaking out about finding a husband or getting married, that's exactly when, you know, you meet someone, right? Is that what they always say? So um, we have a big announcement that we're making, like probably within the next week here, a deal that's closing. And I'm really excited about working on that. Um, But at the same time, I take everything with a grain of salt in the sense that really my life is about, um, you know, my dogs and my kids and my husband and going to track meets and watching my boys run and watching my daughter play soccer. And um, the, the, the Hollywood stuff is fun. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's great. Um, it, it helps with book sales and all of that, but it's just not really the, the important, the important part of life. So I really, I'm really trying right now to, to stay focused and write this book, get to the point where it's not a blank page. I'm actually 30% of the way finished. So it could be worse. I exaggerate. And I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of writers do that with the, it sucks. I'll never finish it routine, but it kind of does suck and I might ever finish it. <laughs> <laughs> you will finish it. There's too many people around you that won't let you not finish it. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice. That's a nice thing to say, but I certainly appreciate talking to you because it is a lot more fun to chat with you on a podcast than, um, that it is to, to, uh, write chapter seven. Here. But, um, <laughs> well, so before I let you go, the last thing I want to ask you, this is if you have the final words of wisdom or the last bits of advice that you want people to be left with about them as a successful person in business, what would that be? I feel like maybe I've said said this already earlier, but I feel like embrace embrace your mistakes and learn from them, and don't be don't be too. I mean, I'll probably give you too much here, rather than one perfect nugget. I'll just spew a bunch of different things, but don't um, 
you know, view view it as it's so important for women to have careers, and it, it's 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 such an important part of who we are, but it's not who we are. And it's it's you know, when you when it's all said and done, at the end of your life, whether you live a long one or a short one, it comes down to the fact that you're this person's wife or this person's sister or you know mother or friend, and we are the sum of our relationships and. And, and if we remember that, I think we take less, we take pressure off ourselves in business. We all, we often end up doing better in business than we would, but we just keep that constant perspective that however things go for us, you know, on paper, it, it's really our relationships that define us. And that's, and that's really what's important in the end. Great. Emily Giffen, thank you so much for being on Made to Be. This has been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to hear your next announcement. Well, thank you. Thank you. I love talking to you, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. Made to Be is a production of Philly Made Creative. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this episode, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or Anchor and stay tuned for future episodes.